All right, it's Cinco de Mayo, and it's Kentucky Derby weekend. So this episode of Working Lunch is fueled by what do we have on the table here, boys? Taco Bell and KFC. Now, that's America. That is a melting pot right there. It's like Will Ferrell, the Will Ferrell Thanksgiving dinner. Wa- wash it down with a mint julep. A little mint julep margarita. Yeah, I, I cannot confirm or deny that at 3 a.m. Uh, for, for many years I've had a six-pack of uh, Taco Bell tacos uh, to, to close out my night. Like last night? Uh, hold on, hold on. I was referring to Colin. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I can confirm that. Yes. <laughs> we all can we've, confirm We've witnessed. That. All right. Witness. Before it gets ugly, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, a big bundle of health-related issues, policies, votes, and debates all impacting your business models. From menu labeling to taxing sugary drinks to Obamacare. We'll get to all of it, plus our Kentucky Derby predictions you never thought you needed. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Kelly, alongside public affairs strategist Joe Kefauver, Franklin Coley, and Carson Chandler here in Orlando, and Joe Renzel is at our Washington, D.C. office. First, let's turn to the D.C. bubble and Joe Renzel, another busy week in the bubble, Joe. Have you seen a kid in a bubble before? What does the House vote to repeal Obamacare mean for operators, and what's in the language that affects business models? Well, I think most importantly, you've got uh, the same thing we've been talking about. It, it's a long haul on this piece of legislation. It did pass the House. That's certainly a win. Uh, there's some pieces in there for operators in terms of uh, zeroing out the, the employer mandate. Uh, but it, it doesn't do anything to the 30-hour work week, which I know is a primary issue for those guys. Politically, though, Joe, it still has a very uphill battle in the Senate, correct? Yeah, that's right. You got a lot of senators already coming out, kind of blasting it. Um, you've got some other kind of politicking going on around the scenes. Um, it, it's going to be a challenge. There's no doubt about that. It's going to take some time. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, that, I think, and Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of Republicans probably in the House voted on this knowing that it's going to come back to them in one shape or another as this process continues to play out. I do think it's got a long, hard slog. This is tough business. Yeah, they didn't even know what they were voting on, to be honest with you. I mean, they were they were getting ahead of themselves, trying to get it out the door before the end of the recess, uh, before the beginning of the recess. And, you know, I think it's important to understand that you had a budget deal earlier uh, in the in the weeks preceding the vote that really wasn't a win for Republicans. It was it was a win for Democrats. You had no no money for uh, Trump's wall. Uh, you had money going to Planned Parenthood, sanctuary cities. Most conservative pundits, they're questioning how Republicans got rolled. Uh, and I think that came into play in terms of Trump's push and leadership's push to get a win. That was really primary, kind of maybe above the policy questions that were at play. Does this shift the momentum or is this only a 24, 48 hour shift? I think there's some momentum that they'll build on. I think there'll be a lot of pressure on the Senate now to to act in one way or another. Um, it's going to be all eyes on them. And that's that's going to be of concern because they can't. Uh, do the things that Speaker Ryan could do. Uh, they have a slimmer mar- slimmer margin between Republicans and Democrats, and so it's going to be a challenge for them. I, I, uh, I, be a lot I, more pressure. I think it create. I, I think it's longer than that window. I think you know Trump's a master of creating his own momentum. The media covers every single thing he does the way he wants them to cover, more or less. And so he, I, I trust his ability 
to make this, to have this appear that he's got wind at his back to go tackle another big tranche of issues like corporate tax reform and get tough again on immigration, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm assuming that was the motivation behind the pep rally they basically had in the Rose Garden. You know, it was all these House members behind him trying to push, you know, create that momentum. If, if you didn't know better, you would have thought that had been re- the law had been repealed, that it was only the House repealing it for the 42nd time. Renzel, what else is bouncing around the bubble this week? Yeah, a couple bubble bouncers. We got comp time. Uh, that's something that's good for operators. They should like that. At the end of the day, it did pass through the House. We'll see what it gets in the Senate. Uh, another big deal for merchants across the board, not just restaurant, but retail, convenience stores, others, is swipe fees. Uh, this is something that's been lurking for a while now. We've, we've expected that coming down the pike. There was some committee action in the House that was fully expected. Uh, the plan is for uh, folks to approach members of Congress so that they can in turn approach leadership, try and get those provisions pulled out of the package associated with debit fees um, and, and before it sees the floor action. But we do expect some action um, pretty much right when they get back uh, that, that second or third week of May. Um, particularly now that they've gotten healthcare out of the way. So more, more to come on that for sure. From a big picture, you know, what, what do you put our chances at success on the House floor knowing that the Senate's our backstop, that we've, we feel good about our chances in the Senate, that we can ultimately stop this effort? But I think it's important, boy, if we can get a win in the House outright on the House floor that we put this issue to bed for a, for a long time to come, what do you think our odds are of actually winning on the House floor? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That would end debate. And and look, this is a bloody fight. This is, from Republican perspective, this is friend on friend. This is retailer, merchant, community against the banks. They don't want to take this vote. Uh, the problem is when the, when the battle happened um, back in 2010, many of those members weren't there. They don't remember it. But those that do, they understand what the, what the situation is, and, and they'll want to uh, educate their members to avoid it. So I, I like our chances, um, but knowing that we have a good, solid backstop in the Senate certainly improves those odds. And again, just like on the health care thing, you know, why would these guys take a tough vote knowing that they're ultimately going to lose in the Senate anyway? So that may help our, our cause. I think that's right. And it's not like the banking community is, is you know, got, is the angels right now. You know, I mean, they they have a bad uh, reputation out there that, that is going to be of concern to some of those members if they side with them. On, on the menu labeling front, uh, the FDA extended compliance by one year into May of 2018. And, you know, the concern is that, that without a national standard that, that we've got states and, and local governments now, they're going to wade into this space, kind of, you know, confusing it more for operators. And it's a legitimate concern. Um, we did see indications out of California, though, that they will match up their effective date with the feds, essentially, you know, delaying a year as well. And that that's a good sign. If other jurisdictions follow California, which I think is, you know, likely, let's not counter chickens where they hatch, but it's likely, then, you know, we may have disaster averted. Over the longer term, it's going to be interesting to see how this conversation plays out because, you know, different segments are not on the same page. Restaurants, in, in particular, you know, fine or casual dining are in a different place in QSRs. Convenience stores. Different place in convenience stores, different, which are in a different place than grocers. So there's going to be a lot of lobbying. There's going to be a lot of jockeying, positioning. You know, the folks in the bubble, they're going to be well paid as they work this issue from every angle. So, 
you know, C-store operators, restaurateurs, everybody kind of needs to stay engaged in this conversation in the coming six months or so. And I think for context, it's important to remember, you know, that we've been dealing this with this issue now for 10 years, right? right. And California was a huge leader in pushing the ball in response to what California was doing was what pushed this federal action. So the fact that California has indicated, they haven't put on in writing, but has indicated that they want to step back and let the federal position, federal situation play out, I think it's very telling to other jurisdictions that would be politically amenable to, to one of these types of, of laws to say, why go through the, the political bloodbath? Why go through the costly enforcement mechanism of setting this up when it all may go away? So I think what California is doing or, or is choosing not to do is very important for other jurisdictions as well. Key Farmer, I just want to take a moment to say welcome back and uh, happy... Happy 82nd birthday. 83. Oh, God. Did you, uh, Franklin said you were out trying to find yourself somewhere on, on a hike or something. Did you, did you accomplish that? I'm still lost. I'm still <laughs> lost soul. Yeah, agreed. But I got a lot more miles <laughs> on me. A lot more mileage on me. This week, 58% of the voters in Santa Fe, New Mexico, voted against a two cents per ounce tax on sugary beverages. Why were so many people paying attention to Santa Fe this week? Santa Fe became a proving ground for this issue. Um, and for a lot of other left-of-center issues. Yeah, yeah. And for this in particular, for this election, uh, you had money coming from all, almost $3 million, over $3 million was spent in this race, you know, $140 per voter. More people voted for this sugar tax, either for or against, than voted in the last mayor's election. So, I mean, it was a full-out campaign. Bloomberg dumped in over a million dollars. Um, if it was going to pass, Santa Fe's going to— You would think of, it would pass there. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, the Santa Fe is not just left of center. It is way left of center. And so you would think that a, quote-unquote, progressive uh, policy initiative like this would have a pretty safe harbor in a place like Santa Fe. And to not only lose is surprising, but to lose by so much is surprising. And so if you're the Bloomberg Foundation who has been focusing on this obesity issue, focusing on sugar taxes, run other initiatives in Philadelphia, Oakland, and some other places, and, and had a good run of success, this is a, a wake-up call. This yeah. is, and, you know, and this is the first one, I think, frankly, am I right, since the election, right? That's right. And up until now, to your point, it has been all in the proponents' favors. I mean, there's been a lot of positive momentum for folks that are promoting sugar taxes, all really starting with the release. It was really Philadelphia and the release of the World Health Organization report that said if you tax sugar like you would tax um, tobacco, then you'll get a real meaningful reduction. And It was basically calling on policymakers to follow the tobacco model yeah, the and, and basically tax away demand for the product. And so they had momentum. This pushes back a little bit, I yeah, guess? Yeah, it couldn't. Time will tell. It could be just a bump in the road. It, but it clearly demonstrates that this issue is not going to work everywhere. Because didn't, didn't the press kind of portray it after the fact as kind of a an uprising, a revolt from lower income folks where this would hit disproportionately hard and so forth. So, Franklin, is this the remnants of the Trump coalition, you know, once again, the little guy making noise and, and fighting back? Maybe. We'll see. I mean, what's interesting is I think you already see the mayor in Seattle kind of trying to reposition around that right now. It's no longer a sugar tax there. Now it's a sweetened beverage tax, and it includes diet sodas 
Um, and after- they've lowered the tax rate, and they've expanded the number of products. So it isn't exactly. targeted right on. So, so it's they're 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 watching what's happening in other jurisdictions, and they're having to moderate their position somewhat. And I guess outspending the beverage industry isn't enough to do it, even in a place like Santa Fe. All right, and that that if you're an advocate, if you're a proponent, that gives you pause. They, they've got to be shocked. Yeah, no doubt. So a lot's playing out at both the federal and state level, so this is probably a good time to get to the legislative scorecard, and these are the top items affecting business models from the week, and as always, we'll start with wages. Franklin, St. Louis is a prime example of the Yogi Berra theory. It's not over till it's over. The mess in Missouri continues. Um, So we have, as of midnight, as of this morning, in St. Louis, the minimum wage is $10 an hour, which is well above the state minimum wage rate. You know, if you had to guess, the state legislature is going to preempt on this, but... We've been waiting for that for four months. Yeah, for at least weeks, if not months. And so, you know, you expect the state legislature is going to come in and they're going to essentially kill this, cancel out this this minimum wage rate. But in the meantime, even though the city is going to take a couple of weeks to start enforcing, employers by law are in the hook right now today to be paying $10 an hour and all employers should be in full compliance with that law. And uh, what about the D- in, in Washington, D.C., back to the bubble? Yeah, back to the bubble. There was a, an effort there to put a $15 an hour uh, minimum wage measure in the ballot. That f- The signature gathering effort there has hit some stumbling blocks and failed, essentially on technical grounds. They may take another run at it, but for for the time being, D.C. operators don't need to worry about a minimum wage measure in the ballot. Keith Oliver, why don't you take wage theft? Yeah, interesting law uh, was signed uh, by Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado that um, kind of beefs up their existing wage theft law and makes the records of all people that have been found guilty of wage theft, all employers, actually a matter of public record. These come under these guise of shaming uh, laws, if you will, uh, and that's a pretty big step. I mean, the, the idea that, that um, you know, if you escape news coverage of the issue, that you're still potentially kind of be outed just in a public records request is it's pretty pretty strident piece of legislation. Renzel, anything on scheduling? Yeah, a couple things to note. Um, I think most uh, prominent is California. We, we've talked about that. They're, they're, they had a standalone bill that forced employers to offer new hours to existing employees before they could hire new ones. Real problematic for operators. Only see it in a couple jurisdictions, cities across the country. Um, and the fact that it was standalone bill in California had folks worry. But that's died in committee, although uh, it could reemerge next cycle. We'll see. Uh, but that's a, a positive step for operators uh, in that state. We're also keeping an eye on Oregon. Negotiations are ongoing on a statewide bill uh, in lieu of preemption over the city of Portland. Uh, and New York City has some uh, committees scheduled, uh, although we're not sure if the scheduling package will be on the agenda yet. Uh, but they're coming up over the next couple of weeks, so we'll have more to report on those. And Franklin, what's happening with Fight for 15? There's a there's kind of a new play that they're they're looking at? Yeah, we're in shareholder meeting season, so all the activist groups are, are gearing up to make a big splash and, you know, whatever the corporate target is. 
Fight for 15 in advance of the McDonald shareholder meeting has rolled out a new kind of line of attack, which is going after franchisors for gouging franchisees' uh, own rental rates. Allegedly. Allegedly. And so we'll, we'll probably see this strategy replicated um, towards other you know, targeted QSR brands. Interesting development. Yeah, I think it's, it's a reach. I mean, but they, they've, you know, they've done a good job of, of throwing so many different types of things to try to disrupt the franchisee franchisor relationship. But right now, you've, you've got a, a working relationship between those two entities, unlike we've had in the last few years because of what the joint employer threat and trying to fix mm-hmm. that threat. So it's a, to, to me, it's an interesting tactic at a bad time. If they had done this three or four years ago, that would have been really smart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think from their standpoint, they just keep poking and prodding and, and see, what, see what happens. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Last Monday, May 1st, was International Workers' Day. And Franklin, you in particular had been predicting large protests around the country. What did you see, and how much did this really affect restaurants and, and retailers, not just on that day, but looking forward? It was a huge day. And it was a huge day, though, in a limited way. We're talking about big cities and mainly big cities in the West Coast. Um, that's where a lot of the activity was. And if you kind of go around, I mean, L.A. had 100,000 people protesting. Chicago had, you know, 20, 30,000, something like that. Those are big numbers. Yeah. New York City obviously had a lot of activity. But um, Were they outside of retailers and restaurants mostly? They were. Um, but it, that was limited. So, you know, we've been calling May Day around here, you know, just the day of anger because there were so many protesters out in the streets, but they were protesting in all sorts of different issues, ranging from climate change to workplace conditions to immigration to, you know, you pick the issue. And so there were protests of restaurants and of retailers. And, you know, there were workers in those locations with those brands that went on strike and participated in protests. But it was drowned out. There were a lot of different people protesting on a lot of issues. It, it just shows the kind of unscheduled, unorganized nature of these things. I mean, in, in Minneapolis, we had janitors protesting wages out front of Home Depot and, and Target and so forth. We had the, the mob showed up in front of J.P. Morgan Chase in downtown New York, you know, uh, on, on, on financial reform stuff. So it was just kind of all over the board. But I think Franklin's right. I mean, a, it was for me. It was a lot bigger than I thought it would be. I thought it would be just a, just another kind of exercise. And their willingness to, at the drop of a hat, pick on a corporate brand or highlight a corporate brand, I thought was pretty interesting. What does it mean that the message was unorganized? That there were so many different people protesting different things. What does that mean for business operators? I don't think we know exactly right now. Here, here's what we do know. Here's what it does mean for operators. There's a lot of political energy out in the streets, there's a lot of anger and frustration at the quote-unquote establishment, which most corporate brands would be lumped in as part of the establishment. And that's dangerous. I mean, that political energy, as Joe said, could be turned towards a brand in an instant or turned towards a political issue or focused towards the ballot box. The other thing, when you look at all of these protests and all these folks that are out in the street, that retailers and, and restaurateurs and operators need to to think about when their employees leave and go and strike and participate in these protests they are putting their names and emails and distribution list for uh, you know different advocacy groups or unions um, that are organizing on issues if they were to take punitive action against employees for participating in these 
certainly, you know, those workers are own distribution list or got a business card. They could get legal representation. So they have a they have an issue to think through in terms of labor relations, in terms of um, other employment issues as their employees go and mix with these worker groups. So, so let me ask you a political question. So, you know, hundred. Let's, let's pick on L.A. for a minute. 100,000 people in L.A. Who? I, 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 I don't know. I'm trying to get my arms around who those 100,000 people are and whether or not they're politically relevant. Were they people that participated in the process last time? Were they people that, you know, were, were Bernie Sanders folks and were disgruntled with Hillary as their candidate and sat it out assuming Hillary would win? Are those are those part of the Obama coalition yeah. Voters. I mean, I'm trying to figure out whether that whether that hundred thousand is politically significant. Do we already hear from them in November or do they sit it out in November? I'd say a good portion of them voted and I would say a good portion of them retweeted some stuff during the election cycle and thought they were engaging in politics and then didn't show up on election day. And and so you're basically saying forty percent of them sat it out and now they're off the couch. I don't know if it's forty percent, but it is a healthy number. But that means it's politically significant. Yes. And that means that they're worth watching now if you're if you're the other side, for whatever, however you define the other side. So, you know, for operators, is there a lesson out of this? You know, there's the, the issues are so varied, they're so across the board. You know, it, it, it'd be a way, it'd be a fruitless exercise for operators to try to fix a position on this, that, or the other. They just need to be very in tuned with their employee base about what they're listening to, what the pressure points are. And, you know, it should inform their employee relations, their customer relations, and how they conduct themselves inside their, their, biz, their business. So who had a better week this week, the Blues or the Reds? Oh, I definitely think the Reds had a better week, certainly in Washington with the health care outcome. Uh, to Joe's point, yeah, they, they, they kind of got their butts kicked a little bit on the continuing budget resolution. But at the state and local level, I mean, yeah, the week started off strong for them. They had a great May Day uh, protest activity, huge rallies, bigger than we thought, 100,000 people in L.A. and so forth. But from a legislative perspective, you know, they, they lost some some high-profile battles on, on issues that, that matter to them in, in pretty safe jurisdictions. The, the, the walk back of the ballot initiative in D.C. on minimum wage, the loss of the scheduling hours legislation in California, and the loss at the ballot on the, the soda tax thing in Santa Fe. These are three, you know, blue heavens, and they lost in all three this week. So mixed results, um, but I'd say the red team had a better week. This weekend is the 143rd run for the Roses. We're doing picks right now for the Derby. Franklin's looking up his. So, Keith Arbor, who do you got? In honor of Big Earn McCracken from Kingpin, I am going with McCracken, 5-1 to one odds. I am bound by my name to go with Irish War Cry. For the 11 minutes a year that I will care deeply about horse racing, I think you got to go with Sun- Thundersnow. Renzo, yeah. who do you got? You know, we're here in the bubble. We're always dreaming. I think they're coming in, running on four. <laughs> well played. Well, well played, played, sir. I'm gonna go master plan, fifty to one odds. That's yeah. It's I like how we're I like how we're choosing horses. Like ninety nine percent of the people there are gonna choose horses. Just basically. I think it's impressive that it's that you would come up with a master plan is really fifty to one odds. I mean, so it's appropriate. Every day, my friend. Every day. That's all the time we have for this week on the pod. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, or if you have an angry message to leave for Kefauver, email us at info at We'll talk to you again soon.